0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Episode 43, Arian Century Part 5, To Be or Not to Be Arian. Welcome back to A to Z History Presents the History of the Papacy. I'm Steve, your host for this podcast about the history of the Popes of Rome and Christian Church. In this episode, we're going to talk about and find out more about what Arianism looked like in the later part of the 4th and early part of the 5th century. Normally, I would say this type of episode would be perfect for a sidetrack episode. But for this series called The Arian Century, It is really central to discuss what an Arian was in the late 4th, 5th, and even into the 6th century. This Arianism was not the same concept as the Arianism of, well, Arius of the late 3rd, early 4th century. The questions for us to ponder during this episode are, what is Arianism and who were Arians? Those will be more challenging questions to answer than they appear on the surface. The relationship between Arius, priest of Alexandria, and the umbrella term for theologies labeled as Arianism was a complicated matter. But we've gone down that road before, and even by the late 4th century, Arius, the priest of Alexandria, was ancient history. Heck, even by the mid-300s, Arius was old news. The term Homoian is more commonly used by academics these days instead of Arian to describe this spectrum of subordinationist theologies where Jesus and the Holy Spirit are considered inferior to God the Father and the Godhead. We're going to talk about why that term Homoian is probably just as lacking as the term Arian. We're also going to talk about where Arianism is was going as we progress into the 5th century and beyond. I doubt this is too much of a spoiler, but Arianism was going to be out of business inside of the Roman Empire after the Second Ecumenical Council in 381 AD. After some councils and imperial decrees, the subordinationists would lose the theological battle for what the official Roman church would be, using the term Roman as the official Christological position of the Roman Empire, at this point including the churches of the East and West. Arianism would survive and thrive in the periphery of the empire and Arianism was going to swing back around in a different and serious way fairly soon in the story, but it wouldn't challenge the new official Orthodox Catholic Church's position. At our time in the story, the late 4th century, early 5th, there was a good number of Arians inside of the Roman Empire. There were pockets of them all over, but their primary stomping ground was in the area of Antioch, and approximately the northeastern corner of the empire up to Constantinople. Generally, the west was mostly Nicene Trinitarian, along with Egypt. We don't have precise numbers on this sort of demographic data. We're talking more about generalities and bases of power. As the 4th century wound down, we approached the Second Ecumenical Council. Arianism was fading out in the Roman Empire, The Arians were winning some victories, but they couldn't seem to be able to make any ground on the Nicenes. And you know what? I'm not exactly sure why that was so. There is the Nicene line from way back in the day and even now that the Nicene position won because they were right with God. That very well could be true, but if that was that I could turn the mic off and we could all bid each other adieu. That would surely free up a lot of my time to go fishing or even spend time with my family. Well, who wants to leave things at that? Arianism was never more than a minority position in the big picture. But beyond that, there was no such thing as Arianism as a fully fleshed out alternative to Nicene Trinitarian Christianity. This is the place where I definitely agree with Charles Freeman. Subordinationist is a much better term for the loose confederation of vaguely allied theological positions. I mean, obviously there was an Arius, and he had a strong theological point of view, but come on, he didn't invent his ideas out of whole cloth, and he really wasn't the spiritual or theological father of the groups that would later be called Arian. These later theological parties or positions would be related to each other, but not always even agree. Maybe that was the reason why Arianism, or subordinationism, had a hard time gaining traction. The Nicene Trinitarians were more able to remain unified when the times were tough. We're going to see pretty soon what happens when the Trinitarians were not able to stick together. And when that happened, it won't be pretty. Don't worry about all that, though. We'll get into that in due time. There were several different brands of Arianism in the late 4th century. Let's get a brief lay of the land on the situation of the Arians. Here's a brief overview, and then we'll get into a bit more detail later. You have the Heterousians, what you might call the hardcore Arians. There were a few different sects of this group, one of the main being the Eunomians, They believed that God the Father and Jesus were of a completely different substance. Jesus was the Word of God, the Logos, but he was a real man, the perfect man, but a man nonetheless. The focus was on Jesus' humanity. Then there was the Homoians, or semi-Aryans, and the ridiculously similar-sounding related group, the Homoocians. Their position was that God the Father and Jesus were of a similar substance. Homoysians went all the way back to the Council of Nicaea, whereas the Homoian theology was really a compromise position hammered out in various church councils throughout the middle part of the 4th century. It was as much influenced by secular politics as it was theology. Basil of Ancyra was one of the big proponents of the Homoian position. Many an emperor was in favor of this Homoianism because they thought it could be a bridge between the Trinitarians and the Heterousians. Homoianism was really a weak brew nobody was buying, and that was really the downfall of this semi-Arianism. Neither the Heterousians nor the Trinitarians, the Homoousians, had much incentive to buy into it. Traditionally, the Gothic Christianity is said to be Homoian, but newer evidence suggests they fell into the Heterousian camp more so. A third group that was often thrown into the Aryan camp was the Numatomaki, the deniers of the Holy Spirit. The Macedonians were the main group of Numatomaki. They were lumped in the Aryan camp because they rejected the trinity where all three were of equal and of the completely same substance. This is interesting because the Nicene Creed 1.0 didn't even say much about the Holy Spirit. Nometomachie is a difficult word to get past in an audio format, so if you do have interest in researching that more, I can spell it for you. It's P-N-E-U-M-A-T-O-M-A-C-H-I. I'm sorry this is all getting so bogged down in the hair-splitting theological debates, but having a little background on these subtle distinctions will make the story a little easier to digest as we progress. Gothic Aryan Christianity is the one we're going to primarily zoom in on because, as interesting as all the other theological lines of thinking are, most of them will completely disappear after the Second Ecumenical Council. Pockets of Arianism will hang in there for quite some time in different parts of the empire, but they won't have a seat at the table for the next batch of theological debates. The seeds of the Gothic or Germanic Christianity were planted in the mid to late 4th century, with Wulfilas, the bishop to the Goths. If you want some more background and biographical information on Wulfilas, I would suggest going back and taking a listen to Sidetrack Episode 17, Little Wolf. Wulfilos had Greek and Gothic roots, and career-wise, he really lived in both spheres. As much as we call Wulfilos an Arian, he was a student of Eusebius of Nicomedia. He may not have even met Arius himself. Generally, Wulfilos has been considered a Homoian or semi-Arian. The reason Wulfilos has been considered a Homoian was based on his agreement with the Homoian creed from a council in Constantinople in 360 AD. This might not have been the creed that he taught to his Gothic flock, though. Wulfilos' training would have been in the heterousian position, and that is the position he more than likely taught for many years before and even after the 360 Council of Constantinople. All this highfalutin theology talk is informative, but it misses part of the story. Namely, what was the day-to-day religion of an Arian or a Gothic Arian Christian as compared to your average Orthodox Christian observer? It's difficult to say what the liturgical practices of the Arians were because not much has survived on this topic. A short hymn or doxology associated with Arians or Homoians survives. There I go. I said I wasn't going to talk theology, and now we're talking doxologies. Stick with me, though, because I think it will help us. The Homoian doxology says, Glory to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. That is very Homoian or Arian view of the Trinity. If you have ever attended a Christian worship of almost any sect of Christianity, you will be familiar with the Nicene Trinitarian version of this doxology, Glory to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Usually there's a few lines after that, but if we compare the two doxological statements, we see a difference. The Nicene formulation is clearly stating each of these three parts of the Trinity are the exact same and equal, where the first Homoian hymn shows a procession from God the Father to Jesus and then to the Holy Spirit. Besides these differences in wording that would have been throughout Arian liturgies and prayers, there wouldn't have been a huge dissimilarity outwardly otherwise. One major thing you'd have noticed is that Gothic Arians would have used their own Gothic language in their liturgy instead of Latin or Greek but that really wouldn't have been a big deal. Latin, as the required language for scripture and liturgy, was still in an early developmental phase at this time in the West. In the East, using a local language for liturgical purposes was common. Of course, Greek was widely used, but so was Aramaic, Coptic, Armenian, and other languages. The use of Latin in the West as the sole language of religion has many antecedents and evolved from the linguistic, political, cultural situation that came out of the collapse of the Western end of the Roman Empire. Really, our modern world sprung from this time period in many ways. As the Western Roman Empire was crashing and burning, political structures were being developed to replace what had fallen apart and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, everyone. I'd like to say something about a new product I've tried called Calatrin. Doctors endorse it. Nutritionists recommend it. And customers love it. Calatrin is for healthy weight loss. I have taken calatrin myself, and I can honestly confirm that I've lost weight, I sleep better, and and I have found relief from a joint injury that I sustained in my arm. Calatrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age, and I am reaching of that age where things decrease. Taking calatrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrend has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President Day Sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HOP230605 and I'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text HOP230605 and I really do recommend you give this product a try and I'll talk to you next time. The Germanic Gothic and assorted, what you might say barbarian groups, came in and basically formed the aristocracy. Whole tribes or nations of Goths came into the empire as well. These Goths or Germans or whatever weren't completely Aryan Christian. They were a mixed bag of Christians and pagans. Take, for example, the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes who went into Britain. They were pagan and pushed the Romano-British Christians to the margins and even out of that land. As we move into the 5th century, we'll get more into the Ostrogoths, Visigoths, and other such groups who blasted into the decaying Roman Empire. But in the 370s, there was a gigantic disaster that almost ruined things early. The Battle of Adrianople was really earth-shattering for the Roman Empire and, ironically, the Arians. The huge defeat of a Roman army by a Gothic army, composed of many Arians, actually led to the victory of Nicene Trinitarianism in the empire. This confluence of secular and religious politics and military affairs and events is what will lead us to the Second Ecumenical Council, so it's worth laying this out now. I'll sketch this situation out in the broadest strokes. If you want to learn more, there are many good sources to learn more to almost any level you could ever want. The Romans had interaction and conflict with the Germanic peoples for hundreds of years. Some lived inside of the empire, but many lived outside of the empire. They were culturally and economically linked to the empire, though, these Germanic groups. The Germans and or Goths would serve in the Roman legions and even rise to very high levels, but Goths or other Germanic groups would also raid into the empire as well. Recall, that is probably the way Wolfalos' family, who were Greeks originally from Cappadocia, wound up in goth country. Last episode, we very briefly mentioned the monumental battle of Adrianople. We breezed over the battle in the Damasus episode because it didn't have much to do with Damasus directly. But Adrianople did have a lot to do with Christianity and the politics of Christianity. I think the religious cultural aspect of this battle and the events surrounding it are skimmed over too much. They were in fact central to the whole situation. My whole mindset changed after reading about this time period. It isn't like I haven't been reading and learning about the Roman period since I was a little kid, but I always had the impression of the Germans north of the border straight up barbarians who wore skins, lived in little dirt huts, you know, but obviously that couldn't be further from the truth. The various Germanic groups north and east of the Roman Empire had been in contact with the Romans for hundreds of years, like we said. There were deep trade relations between the two areas and significant cultural exchanges as well. As the years progressed from the crisis of the third century, more and more Germans, Goths, etc. began to fight in the Roman army. The Germans acquired Roman culture, and in many ways, the Romans acquired some aspects of the German culture. This exchange would go into hyperdrive after the fall of the Roman Empire. A bunch of Germanic confederations, tribes, nations, whatever you want to call them, formed buffer states along the northern border that served to separate and protect Rome from the really scary groups further beyond in the steppe. At this point, the Roman Empire was not the Roman Empire of Trajan or Augustus. The empire had been on shaky economic ground for many decades. Some previous policies had helped stabilize things, but they had really stabilized things at a lower level of economic output. The situation began to worsen, though, in a serious way. A large group of Goths lived north of the Danube, to the east. I could get into all the geography, but in short, we're talking about the Goths who more or less lived due north of Constantinople and modern day northern Bulgaria and Romania. The economic situations for the Goths laid an egg, and those scarier barbarians, if you will, to the north of them started to squeeze in on them. So those Goths, under their leader Frittigern, were like, hey, can we come in and just settle in the empire already? Maybe get a little land somewhere to farm, set up a colony of sorts, whatever. For the Romans, there were some upsides and some downsides to this proposition. The population of the empire had been declining from various plagues. The Roman army could always use more troopers, and for us, many of these Goths were Arian Christians. For the Roman Emperor Valens, the fact that many were Arians was a big plus. Valens was an Arian, as were many emperors before him. Bringing in a big influx of Arians would help build a larger base for the Arian position in the empire. As with every major decision, there were some serious downsides. The economic situation inside of the Roman Empire was only marginally better than what the Goths had on the other side of the border. Now, if marginally means that there is food on the Roman side and there's nothing to eat on the Goth side, then anyone would take that bargain. For the Romans, the arguments against letting the Goths into the empire are the age old ones against letting foreign groups immigrate en masse into your country. There were the legit arguments against it spreading already stretched resources even thinner, you know and there was also less legit reasons such as the ethnocentrist racist type ones. There was at least one unique reason for Romans to be against the migration of the Goths into the empire though. The Nicene Trinitarian Christians did not want a huge influx of Arian Christians settling in the empire. Valen's upside was the Nicene's downside. These goths wanted into the empire in the worst way, but for Valens, the decision to either let them in or not was full of pitfalls. He was in a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't situation. Poor Valens really couldn't win. I love those sort of political situations. A great leader and politician can, with a little luck, pull out of one of these types of scenarios, smelling like roses and becoming a legend. With a little bit of bad luck, the leader becomes a heel like Valens. Everything gets blamed on Valens. Some of the failings were his fault, others were beyond his control. What got the whole ball rolling towards Adrianople was the treatment the Goths received when they were ultimately allowed to enter the empire. Valens' plan was to allow the Goths to settle in depopulated areas as farmers, but in other parts of the east, far away from Constantinople. The plan fell apart as soon as the Goths took their first step into the empire. The local Roman officials treated the Goths like such complete garbage. The Goths decided it was better to raid and do their own thing instead of listening to the Romans. By garbage, I mean the local Roman governors and leaders were stealing Goths' children to sell into slavery, not feeding anyone, putting them into camps and more. There were even stories of Romans offering Gothic parents dog meat in return for their children. Dog meat for children. This is all happening in the neighborhood of 376 AD, for you people who are into dates and all. For the next two years, the Goths raided and skirmished with the Romans in the neighborhood of the Thrace southern Bulgarian region for about two years. It took a while for Valens to develop a plan of attack and to redeploy his forces. In the summer of 378, the big showdown between the Goths and Valens' army went down. Long story short, Valens was utterly crushed and wound up getting himself killed in the process. The Battle of Adrianople was one of the main reasons Arianism was ultimately defeated or delegitimized in the Roman Empire. Why, you might ask, did this happen? Well, there's a couple of reasons. A big reason was the Nicene party positioned themselves very well politically for whatever the outcome of the battle was. After the battle, the Nicene side said that God had turned his back on Valence for supporting the Arian party. If Valence had won, they could have said that God was supporting the Nicene Christian Roman Empire against the pagans and Arian Goths. It was a win-win situation for the Nicene party, it didn't matter that the Goths were Arians and one big, they could always be painted as rampaging barbarians. The death of Valens left a power vacuum that allowed Theodosius the Great to rise to power. Theodosius was a staunch Nicene Christian who had absolutely no problem throwing all of his weight and the weight of the imperial Roman government in favor of his preferred theological position. Emperors from Constantine onward were going to have the goal of unifying the empire religiously. Emperors could do nothing, just stay out of the debates, try to find a compromise position, or promote one particular position. All of these positions had succeeded and failed depending on the emperor. Theodosius is going to succeed big with supporting the Nicene, what we can call the orthodox position. The Second Ecumenical Council, the 381 Council of Constantinople, would set the Orthodox position of the Trinity until today. Arianism really won't go away for at least another 150 years after Constantinople 381. Most of the Germanic peoples who would carve up the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century were Arian Christians, but they wouldn't start the conversation up again. The Germanic-Gothic Aryans were the overlords of a very large Nicene Orthodox population. Then, the incredibly powerful Germanic tribe the Franks would convert to Christianity, but instead of becoming Aryans, which could have really changed things, they became Nicene Orthodox Christians. We'll get into all of this in good time. If you want to learn more about the ins and outs of Gothic Christianity and Wolfilas, a great source to look into is Arianism, Roman Heresy, Barbarian Creed by Guido Burnt. I used that book and the good old Seven Ecumenical Councils by Leo Davis in researching this show. If we go back to the initial question of this episode, what is Arianism and who were Arians? I don't know if we've come any closer to an answer. Hopefully there's a treasure trove of documents buried somewhere that will lay out the specifics of their religious practice. If or until that happens, we'll just have to work with what we have, and that isn't much. As we progress in the story of the popes, we'll learn a bit more about some of the few clues on Gothic Aryan practice, but that's another story for another day. Thank you for joining us in this tour of the History of the Roman Popes and Christian Church. The History of the Papacy podcast is a proud member of the HistoryPodcasters.com network. If you have a few free megabytes on your MP3 player or phone, I would highly suggest you listen to the latest history collage from HistoryPodcasters.com. If you'd like to get in contact to share your thoughts, ask questions, or anything else, you can email me at steve at a2zhistorypage.com. You can find links to all of the social media, Facebook-type stuff at the website a t o z com. There is a button there to donate. If you donate any dollar amount, you'll receive a special bonus track as a thank you. This week, I'd like to send a special thanks to Donator Steven. Enjoy your bonus episode. Thank you very much for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on our next stop on our trip through the history of the Roman Popes, and Christian Church. War has played a key role in the history of the United States, from the nation's founding right down to the present. Wars made the United States independent, kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Hi, I'm James Early, host of the Key Battles of American History podcast. In each episode, I discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. To start listening now, go to parthenonpodcast.com or search Key Battles of American History on your favorite podcasting platform.